Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. In each of the letters to the churches in Revelation, Jesus describes himself in ways that show his Godhood and his love for each one of us and his encouragement for his church. Except one church. To the church of Thyatira, we're introduced to Jesus in his anger and his judgment. What could be so wrong with this church that Jesus, the cornerstone of the church, would pour out his fury on them? Will those of us who do not follow the, quote, deep things of Satan, as expressed to the church of Thyatira, be held accountable for the sins of those in the church who do hold the deep things of Satan? I'm Debbie Blank, continuing our verse-by-verse walk through the book of Revelation. Today, we'll study the middle of the seven churches to see what God has to show us in Thyatira. Jesus uses a specific outline with each of these churches when he speaks to them. And we've been talking about that on the show. So we put together a chart that outlines all of the C's, I call them, which are Jesus' commendation and condemnation and those kinds of things. If you would like to have that chart, you can go to our website on the very front page and download it so you can follow along with us in this study. Go to livingwordministry.org. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Do you remember a popular song that Bette Midler sang a few years ago called From a Distance? The central lyric is, God is watching us from a distance. It was a pretty song, but I always thought that if anyone thought God was only observing them from a distance, they were sadly mistaken. Jesus is watching us, and he is very nearby. In Revelation 1, we see him right in the middle of the seven churches, actively paying attention to every deed and every motivation of the heart. He is supervising, judging, and giving out report cards. And this week, the Church of Thyatira is judged to be a very compromised church. As we consider their sad report, we may want to ask ourselves, how compromised is our church today? Well, most of us are willing to do just about anything to get along with others. Why? Because we don't want controversy. We don't want pain. Most of us are willing to tolerate a lot of different things so that it will help the common good, so that we can all just get along. Most of us are easily manipulated, whether it's with pain or something else that will get us to do what others want us to do. Compromise is something that's necessary. We need to do that in our jobs, in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, but not when it comes to God and his word. That's where we have a problem. That's the problem we see in the church at Thyatira. You talked about how we need to compromise in various areas of our lives. And I think that that's one of the things that makes people think that compromise in the church is a virtue because compromise in so many other areas is something good. It's something where we reach an agreement. But when we compromise, when it comes to sin, it's not good. In this case, when we compromise with truth, that's a lie. And when we tolerate sin, we don't deal with the sin as we should. That's sin. How about God? It's okay to use the name God, but it's not okay to use the name Jesus. Well, Jesus Christ is the foundation of the Christian church. He's the gospel message. And yet people are saying we can't use the name of Jesus. And we're going, oh, well, that's okay. He's God. It doesn't matter. Ah, but we're seen. We're being compromising and watering down. 
How about we all believe in the same God? Well, that sounds good. You know what? Then we don't have any controversy. We do not all believe in the same God. Biblically, we do not. And we have to acknowledge the differences. Doesn't mean we have to argue about them or put somebody down because they don't believe them. But we must acknowledge that they're there. Look at the cancel culture that we're going through right now. Why is that happening? Because one group of people wants their way and they want to silence the other group of people. So what's happening in a lot of times, the other group of people is getting silenced instead of standing up for what's right. And that's not necessarily in the church, but it certainly can be. Uh, We have people who are so angry and the chaos and the lack of love, which is opposite of God's word. That's not compromise. That's just pure evil. What's it causing us to do? Criticize others instead of blessing them. Our culture, our attitudes have completely been compromised. So we're doing what seems right in our eyes rather than doing what's right for God and others. When you talked about that people say that we all worship the same God, I remember listening to a radio sermon years ago where a Christian pastor preached on how Islam and Christianity were virtually the same and started to talk about all the similarities, and they were such superficial similarities, I couldn't believe my ears. It's so demonstrably false. And I think if you would ask someone who is a Muslim, they would probably tell you the same thing. It's not the same. We do have differences. Like you said, it's okay. You don't have to beat somebody up over it. But it's either true or not true. That's perpetrating something that's not true. And compromise is that very thing. Well, there is no truth anymore. There's just gray areas. Truth is what we want it to be. Well, no, folks, truth is truth. And truth comes from the word of God. The only truth we can rely on is Jesus Christ and his word. Where does the truth come from? The word of God comes from God. It's his inspired word, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. It's his words breathed into the hearts of men to write down. There's no other document written that way. So that would mean that any other document we would follow, any other foundation or truth would be written by man and and man's fallible. God is not. God is true. So we need to be careful of compromising. That was the problem in the church of Thyatira. According to Revelation 2.18, it says the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. Well, Jesus is called three things here, described three different ways, that each description of Jesus to each one of the churches comes out of chapter one, where he is introduced with these different qualities. The first way Jesus is described is the son of God. In order to understand that, we need to understand the history of Thyatira. Thyatira was really a pretty insignificant city. The longest letter, as a matter of fact, to the churches is written to Thyatira, which was the least significant city. It was significant in that they had a lot of trade guilds, whether it's bakers or bronze smiths or wool or linen. They had a dye that they found in the ground there that they were able to dye things with the red coloring. And that made them to being able to weave certain linens and certain garments and certain tanners. These trade unions wielded a lot of influence. Now, you can look at that today, perhaps, as teachers' unions or as some of the trade unions that we have. People are required to give dues to these unions, and then the union workers use them for political purposes, supposedly to help the people in their union, but also a lot for political purposes that they think will help that particular union. 
So that's the way it was happening in Thyatira. People were being forced to be involved in these unions. And back then, they didn't have a lot of other social outlets. So when you were involved in the unions, you became a member. You participated in their activities. You worshipped at their temples. They did have one particular god of Thyatira. He was called Apollos, the son of Zeus. He was also called Tyremnus. Do you know how he was described? As the son of God. He was described that way because he was the son of Zeus. And of course, Zeus being the head God. Isn't it just like Jesus to describe himself as the son of God? To use the name that was most popular for him to use about himself as he's describing that he is the true son of God in this city of trade unions who worshiped the supposed son of God. So it's important for him to take that head on, which he does in his description of himself, and that's why that's relevant. What you just described is why this is a relevant description of himself to the Church of Thyatira. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to describe himself as having eyes like a flame of fire. Well, that's anger. We see that in chapter 1, verse 14. We also see it in chapter 19, verse 12, when Jesus returns in Revelation. And he has eyes like fire because he's coming in anger. He's coming in judgment. So when it describes his feet as being burnished bronze, it's the same thing. Jesus is identifying himself in this church, not with the love and tenderness and heartfelt caring that he has for his church, but in judgment. Why would Jesus do that? Well, clearly they have some pretty gross sin that has turned them away from God. And he's really concerned about that. Well, it's interesting because he goes from there to acknowledge some deeds that they've done. He says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds are of late greater than at first. So that sounds pretty good. So he acknowledges what they're doing right, but there's a big exception. Oh yeah. You're working folks. You look like Christians. Your outward activities are benefiting others. And he said, and your love, that's agape love. That's the kind of love God wants us to have for him and for everybody else. And they're displaying it. And their faith, pistis in the Greek, that means they have a belief in Jesus Christ. They're following him. And their service, that's their servanthood. What else did Jesus call us to do? And he says, in your perseverance, perseverance is God's hope that never gives up. Hupomone means we're putting ourselves under the authority of God. We're persevering under every circumstance. That's really good. He says, and that your deeds of later greater than at first. You look at the church of Ephesus, their deeds at first were better than later. They lost their first love. He didn't say that about them. He says everything that they're doing is so beneficial for the kingdom of God, and they're getting better at it. Something else must be so terrible that he's coming at them with judgment. So what is it? Verse 20 of Revelation 2, Jesus condemns them by saying, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There is a lot in this condemnation. First of all, let's start by saying, this is my problem that I have against you, that you tolerate. What does it mean to tolerate? To tolerate means to let go, let be, just leave it alone. It's okay. It's not going to hurt us. What difference does it make if something evil is over here? Because it doesn't affect me. Well, what we forget is that that evil will affect others. And then it will permeate until it affects the entire church. 
So they tolerated, they left alone. They allowed her to continue. And, and who's the her? Jezebel. Was it really Jezebel? Of course not. Jezebel's long dead by the time this is written. But what do we think about when we think about Jezebel? The most evil woman in all of scripture. She was a murderer. She murdered Naboth so she could have his vineyard for her husband because he pouted. She was a follower of Baal gods and had actually 850 Baal gods and Asherahs at her table that she fed all the time. She tried to kill Elijah when he murdered her Baal prophets. She was ruthless. She was evil. She was seductive. But most importantly, she didn't follow God. She compromised truth. She and her husband Ahab led the northern kingdom of Israel astray, going against the truth of the word of God. That's what we think of when we think of Jezebel. It was prophesied that she would die by having her blood licked in the streets by dogs. And she was killed that way. When King Jehu came into Jezreel, he said, who up there is with me? And a couple of eunuchs waved their hands out the window. And he said, throw her down to the street. She had painted herself all seductively. And these eunuchs threw her out the window down to the streets and the dogs licked her blood because even to the end, she was evil to influence other people with her attitude. And so the similarity here is that even though her name may or may not have been Jezebel, and you know, people probably didn't name people Jezebel back then, but she acted like this, this woman, Jezebel, she calls herself a prophetess. It doesn't say she is one. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. She's taking believers and leading them into acts of immorality and idolatry, eating things sacrificed to idols. Those are two very, very serious things. They cannot be tolerated. And yet, this fine church is letting her have her way and letting her accumulate a following. So it says in verse 21, And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. And then what does that say about her followers? The same thing. She calls herself a prophetess. At that time in Thyatira, there was a prophetess named Sanbath. People would go to her temple in order to get an oracle from her, much like the Oracle of Delphi. So she would prophesy, and people believed it. Today, we are hearing prophecies that are attributed to God. The word of the Lord came to me and said this, or God spoke to me this way and said this. Who am I to say whether God spoke to somebody or not? I don't know that. But what I do know is scripture is very clear in Deuteronomy 18, that if the word that someone speaks is truly from God, it will come true to pass 100% of the time. If it doesn't, it's not from God. So what I hear a lot are people prophesying and then interpreting when things don't happen the right way. They say, well, I misinterpreted. Or I think what he meant was this instead and so forth. Folks, we have to be so careful because we have people saying things. We're talking spiritual things here, obviously, but we have people saying political things. Do you know that there's an astronomical amount of Russians and Chinese operatives who are on the internet feeding us full of garbage? And we don't know if it's true or not. How do you know that what you're reading on the internet is really true? And the answer is there's only one way. It's from the Word of God. If it matches up with the Word of God, it's true. If it's anything else, whether it has to do with COVID or Russia or even the politics or anything, we don't know if it's true. 
So why are we getting caught up in following all this stuff and getting riled about it and talking about it all the time and making it be the focus of our conversations and acting like it's truth when we really don't know it's truth? That's what a prophetess does. That's what they were doing then. That's what we're seeing today in our culture and in our church. It's interesting in this passage when Jesus is talking about this, and it's a very serious thing, that he's already said he has given her time to repent. In most of the churches that we're going to be studying, that we have studied and we're going to be studying, there's an opportunity. He admonishes them to repent. That's such an important thing. But here, she's already been given the opportunity to repent, and she is hardened. She's not going to. So Jesus is not being unfair here at all in anything that he judges about her. And he says, she leads my bondservants astray. So she's not only not repenting, she's continuing to walk away from God. And I think, where are we compromising? What are we doing where we're listening to other people that causes us to walk away from the truth? And one thing that came to mind for me was the Tri-Faith Initiative in Omaha. You know, there's nothing wrong with Jews and Christians and Muslims talking and communicating. Nothing wrong with that at all. But the Tri-Faith Initiative is designed to bring everybody together to compromise. The Bible says we cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Those three religions do not match up. They may be Abrahamic religions, but they don't have the same doctrinal foundation. We look at Black Lives Matter. In God's eyes, all lives matter. And to be able to take one group of people and say they're more important than another goes against God's vision of loving everyone. And then the social agenda that has come out and become public of what Black Lives Matters, well, people who want to stand up with the black have now caught on to this agenda. They've been led astray by Jezebel to believe an agenda that's anti-God, Marxist, communist. We cannot lower our standards from the truth of the word of God, even when the world does. God does not differentiate. But then let's not compromise and agree to philosophies that don't match up with the word of God. That's why in Romans 2, we're warned, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We can't be conformed to the world, but Jezebel was leading this church astray and they were following her. They were listening to her. They were compromising with her so that they ate things sacrificed to idols. They were committing acts of immorality thinking, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, it's okay. And that compromise and following her led the whole church down. And don't we see that happening in our churches today where the things that the Bible describes as immoral are not only tolerated, they're accepted today, and now they're also celebrated right in the churches. So we have a current example of that. That's why, as you said earlier, Jesus counsels this church in Revelation 2.21 and says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. They don't want to repent, and they often don't because they're the ones who want the power and the accolades and everything that they have. So she didn't want to repent. Jesus says, I'm going to judge her, verse 22. I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her and do tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each of you according to your deeds. 
Now consider this. If this is the, the church era that follows all the church areas that we've been going along, this is the time of the Dark Ages. From 590 AD to 1517 AD, this is the time of the Black Plague that killed somewhere between 75 and 200 million people. Do you think that that could be what God's talking about here? Where he's going to cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her to great tribulation unless they repent? I don't know if it means that. What I do know is this is the promise of God that if we will not repent, first of all, the leaders have to repent, the ones who are causing us to compromise. But even if they don't, we as individuals need to repent because we have consequences too. We cannot blame other people for the decisions that we make. They may lead us astray, but we're the ones that make the decisions to compromise. And because of that, there are consequences. It's interesting, though, that the people who are her followers in this church are being given another chance to repent. So that is put out there for them. The ones who have participated in this are given another chance to repent. And the ones who have not participated, those who are in the church but have not taken hold of any of the deep things of Satan, as they call them, he places no other burden on them. So there is a remnant in that church that is not holding to what Jezebel is teaching and doesn't have anything to do with it, doesn't approve of it. And God recognizes that. He knows their hearts. And we mentioned that at the very beginning of the show. Does God hold us responsible if the people in our church do the wrong thing? And the answer is no. We have a personal responsibility before God. If we're doing the right thing, God will honor that. We need to stand up for truth even when other people aren't. I'm sure you're familiar, as I am, of many churches that have split over one thing or another. Each group had to decide what was right and wrong in their split, but they didn't tend to agree. So God blessed the people who were doing the right thing and left or stayed and vice versa, depending on what the situation is. We have a responsibility not to hold the teachings of others, and God will honor that. But we also have a responsibility to speak the truth. And that could mean standing up for righteousness. Certainly, I do not advocate ever leaving a church that you disagree with without first going to the pastor and the leaders and trying to walk through the issues of the church before you ever leave. And when you leave, make sure that you go away without any bitterness or anger, but in the spirit of love of the Lord. Otherwise, you take your problems, your compromising what you've heard and struggled with to other churches. When I think of how good some of us look on the outside as Christians, I'm reminded of Matthew 23, 27. In that passage, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're all like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Now, Jesus is not saying that that's what their hearts are like in this, but it does remind me of that because so often as Christians, we look so good on the outside. We really dress up nice. We speak the language, but then the truth might come out. I remember a particular deacon in my church who was the pillar of society, and it took probably 10 years to find out that he was having an affair, and it destroyed he and his family, obviously. You just never know what's on their insides of their hearts. And the same thing goes with our churches. We have so many mega churches in our countries. And generally speaking, they become such because of good leadership or good pastors or good vision or whatever, a right direction. But then you have to look at a statistic by Lifeway. 
several years ago. LifeWay is a Baptist organization. They did a survey and they asked 1,600 mega churches, what makes your church successful? If they were asking me what makes the ministry successful, it would be how many people's lives are changed. How many people have come to know the Lord? How many transformations have there been? How many baptisms have there been? Things like that to show a change. As a matter of fact, somebody today told me that it must have been 12 years ago when I taught the book of Ezekiel that I shared Ezekiel 31, the watchman on the wall. And I said in that passage, as we studied it, how many of you are willing to be the watchman on the wall for Jesus Christ? And this gal said, the day that you said that, I sat in my seat, but in my heart, I jumped up, waved my hands and said, I am willing to be the watchman on the wall. And that woman has gone on to be a great follower of Jesus Christ, a scholar of the word, a marvelous teacher, and someone who loves Jesus unequivocally. That to me is what makes a ministry successful. So Lifeway asked, what makes a ministry successful? These mega churches. One is the size of their budget. Number two is the size of their building. Number three is the number of pastors. Next is the number of programs. And finally, how many people attend their church? Ah, that's really something as I read that because nothing there has to do with spiritual growth. And therein lies a problem that we're seeing in our churches today, much like the church of Thyatira is, we are compromising. As we talked last week about a pastor in Tennessee who had two pastor friends who committed suicide because so many of our churches are looking for the wrong thing. They're looking to blend into the world and to make their budgets rather than to be an influence for Jesus Christ in this world. Imagine the revival we would see if the compromises, if the Jezebels in our churches would lead the churches in the right direction, would stop compromising with the world's principles and would follow only the truth of the word of God. Well, let's end this now with Jesus and he gives him counsel. He says to the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2, 25, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. So again, he's encouraging them, stay strong. And he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. So I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Well, this is just so wonderful because Jesus described himself at the very beginning of this as the son of God, the one who is in complete authority. And after he has committed judgment on those who haven't walked in his way, he blesses those who have with the power to have authority, his authority. Remember before Jesus left this earth, he says in Matthew 28, 19, all authority has been given me in heaven and on the earth. So Jesus now is giving that authority over to us. As he rules with a rod of iron, we're going to get to rule with him with a rod of iron. And as he has received authority from the Father, he's going to give that to us. That's what we have to look forward to if we don't compromise. Where does compromise get us? Nowhere. There is nothing positive. Oh, maybe we'll compromise for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years on this earth and and have some pretty nice earthly things. But I would rather stand on the truth of the word of God and reign with Christ and have authority with him forever 
than a few years of compromising and what it offers temporarily here. Compromise? Boy, that's simply reaching an agreement of mutual acceptable terms. Great in life, not great when it comes to God and his word. I encourage you to know the truth and never compromise your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if you do, you will suffer the consequences of the church of Thyatira. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154. Or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.